Well, good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Our sermon text for this morning will be Luke 24, 36 through 43. But we'll go ahead and read through to the end of the chapter just to finish out the whole uh, text that we started reading earlier, the whole narrative of Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. So Luke 24, let me pray uh, as we come to God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we, we come, we, we long to hear from you. We long to, to see Jesus in the scriptures. We long to be fed on the bread of life. We long, to, uh, we long to see Jesus with the eyes of faith, to see his glory. We long to draw near to you, Father. We pray that you would pour out your spirit in our midst that you would move in our hearts, that you would draw us close to you, even as we hear your word read. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Luke 24, beginning with verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Well, some things are really just too good to be true. In fact, in in the slogans of our somewhat cynical day, you hear this kind of thing all the time, right? If it sounds too good to be true, then it is, right? Or uh, if it sounds too good to be true, something's wrong. Or my personal favorite, if it seems too good to be true, read the fine print and see how much it will cost you. See, we're, we're skeptical, right? I mean, we know that the, the scammers and the schemers are, are out there. They're trying to take our money, and, and we're too smart to be taken in. So if anything sounds too good to be true, we just, we just move on. Sometimes we express disbelief, though, for believable things. It's like when you ace a test that you thought you were going to bomb, and you say, I can't believe it. I got an A. Or when you... When your uh, team finally wins the Super Bowl, right? you say, I can't believe it, we won. Right? 
sometimes we express disbelief for things that really are rather believable. Well, Christianity is, is one of those things that if you understand the Christian message, you realize that it is one that is too good to be true. I mean, the disciples themselves, Luke tells us, disbelieved for joy. That's what verse 41 says. It's kind of a funny phrase, right? They disbelieved for joy. The disciples of Jesus, upon seeing the risen Jesus, thought the resurrection itself was too good to be true, and they're so excited they can't believe it. And just imagine where they're coming from, right? Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. I mean, let's say you spend three years following a guy, and over that time you you come to believe that, that he is God's appointed king, that this person, this Jesus, is going to free you from oppression, the oppression of a foreign government that has invaded your country, and God sent him to free your whole nation. And as you watch Jesus, your confidence in him grows. I mean, he's a good man, right? The best man that you've ever met. He speaks with authority, right? Everything he says is always true. It's always right. It's always full of grace. He performs miracles. He heals the sick. The demons know his name. You even saw him raise someone from the dead twice. And this Jesus knows scripture like nobody else. He answers every question of the religious elite. He even puts them to shame, right? Because he silences them with his questions, which they can't answer. He has this way of speaking, right, so that those who think they're smart don't understand and those who come like little children just eat it up. He smiles at sinners. He invites in children and he calls out the hypocrites. And then one day you come into Jerusalem and the crowds flock to him and they praise him with song, right? They say, Hosanna, save now to Jesus. They call him the son of David, right? They're recognizing him as the king, And when the religious leaders are indignant, Jesus says that if the children are silent, the stones would cry out. The stones. I mean, just imagine it. I mean, this guy is as bold as they come. But then things start to get weird. Right? At Passover, he says that the bread is his body and the wine is his blood. He also says someone is going to betray him. One of you, right? One of Jesus' own. And you think, there's just no way, right? But, but he said so. And then you sing together and you go out to the olive grove to pray. And a crowd comes with torches and swords to arrest Jesus. And you think, well, maybe this is the time to fight. Maybe this is the time to make our move, to overthrow the oppressor. Peter, ever the one to make the first move, right? He draws first blood to show that you mean business. But Jesus just heals the guy. And lets himself be arrested. Why would he do that? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, how can he overthrow Rome from prison? The next day, when Pilate is ready to, to, to let Jesus off, the crowds call for him to be executed. Jesus executed. Right? They beat him, they mock him, they brutalize him, they nail him to a cross, and there your hope dies. You had thought that he would redeem Israel. A couple of the religious leaders who were friendly to Jesus bury him in a tomb and it's all over. Three years gone. Your Jesus is dead. And then you hear some women start to say that Jesus has risen. Women. It sounds like nonsense. But then Jesus appears to Peter. 
And then, and, then, and then Peter, right? Peter says he's seen the risen Jesus. And, and then Cleopas and his wife Mary say that they saw him too. And of course, everything starts to get more confusing. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus just shows up right there in your midst. I mean, what would you think? Jesus? Alive? It just, it just doesn't make any sense. It's amazing. It's incredible. But it's too good to be true. The disciples thought the resurrection was too good to be true. And of course, so it makes sense that many throughout history have thought the same thing. We're going to look at verses 36 to 43 this morning. We're going to look at this appearance of Jesus to the disciples. We're going to talk about this thing that is, that is too good to be true. Now, I should point out that in, in, in some ways, both Christians and non-Christians have a problem with the resurrection. I mean, non-Christians, of course, they don't believe that it happened, right? The resurrection is is a mere fairy tale. But many Christians also, they they don't really believe the resurrection either. I mean, they would say they believe it. It's a doctrine that they confess. But we often completely miss the implications of the physical nature of the resurrection that our Savior got up out of the grave. And so we're going to notice three things about the resurrection this morning. You can see the outline in your bulletin. It's on the back there. We're going to look at the resurrection as a historical event. We're going to look at the resurrection as a physical event. And then we're going to look at the resurrection as a redemptive event. First, let's look at the resurrection as a historical event. The resurrection as a, as a historical event makes or breaks Christianity, doesn't it? I mean, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. It's futile. And you are still in your sins, he says. If the resurrection is a fraud, then Christianity is a sham. And so it's pretty important that the resurrection is a historical event. And by that I mean an event that happened in the past. Now, if you were trying to prove that you had risen from the dead... How would you do that? Well, first, you'd have to appear to people. But specifically, you'd have to appear to people that you knew before you had died. Right? To appear to people who, who never knew you wouldn't necessarily prove anything. Because how, how would they know? Right? How, how would they know the difference between you and anybody else? And so Jesus comes... And he appears to his disciples, people who knew him, in verse 36. But immediately we actually run into a problem because he appears to his disciples. And besides being scared stiff, they also think, verse 37, that he's a ghost. They see Jesus and they, they think they're seeing a ghost. Now, a ghost is not the same thing as a resurrected body, right? The spirit of Jesus is not the same thing as the body of Jesus. And the resurrection is about his body, the body of Jesus, getting up out of the grave. And so now Jesus has to prove that he's not a ghost. Something that none of us, I assume, have ever had to prove. And so why? why, why what does he do next? He, he says in verse 38, See my hands and my feet. That it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he he showed them his hands and his feet. 
Why his hands and his feet? Well, Jesus' hands and feet are where the nails had pierced him through and hung him to the cross. You remember that maybe the the disciple Thomas at one point, you can read about this in the book of John, the disciple Thomas said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of, of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas was a a seeing is believing kind of guy, right? And so he said, unless I see it, got to see the nail prints. And so Jesus said to Thomas, you may remember there in John 20, he said, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And so when Jesus says to his disciples here in Luke, he says, see my hands and my feet in verse 39. And then in verse 40, he actually shows them his hands and his feet. It emphasizes it, right, by saying it twice. He's showing them the scars, right? These are Jesus' hands. Nobody else has scars like these. No living person anyway, right? These are, these are, these are Jesus' feet and Jesus' hands, but Jesus is not simply trying to convince the disciples, right, not, not only that he, who he is, but also that he's not a ghost. And so he says, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He's saying, you see me, you recognize me, you see my hands and my feet, my scars, now touch them. Right? Reach out your hand, feel the wounds. The Apostle John, in, in, the, in the letter of 1 John, he says that he saw and looked upon and heard and touched with his hands the word of life. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones. Jesus rose with flesh and bones. People touched him. People felt the nail marks. Now the disciples are still in disbelief. This is where the phrase disbelieved for joy comes in in verse 41. It says, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? You see, ghosts don't eat. Spirits don't chew food. And Jesus takes a piece of fish and he eats it before their eyes. How much, what what more physical thing can there be than eating Right, then chewing food. And here is Jesus. He's no ghost. He takes a piece of food and he eats it right before them. He has risen from the dead, just as he said. Now that's great, you might think. Jesus appeared to the, the disciples. I mean, good for them. They saw him. They heard him. They touched him. What about me? I mean, why doesn't Jesus appear to me? I mean, if he would appear to me, well, then I would believe he rose from the dead as well. Of course, we're trying to establish the resurrection as a historical event. How do you establish a a historical event? Not by repeating it over and over again. You establish historical events, among other things, by eyewitness testimony. People who actually saw it happen. And that is what God is establishing right here, eyewitnesses. Peter in Acts chapter 10 says this, He says, God raised him up on the third day and made him appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. 
See, God chose certain people as eyewitnesses to the resurrection to proclaim and to testify to the resurrected Jesus so that all other people might know. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he actually gives a list of people that Jesus appeared to. He says that Jesus even appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. It's an interesting little detail. right? Why would he say that most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep? Well, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, go ask them. Anybody who wanted to talk to the eyewitnesses of the resurrection in the decades following, right, had an abundant supply of witnesses. They could go. They could talk to people. They could ask them. Now, some people say that, well, all those people, they were just hallucinating, right? Or maybe they were lying. Maybe they made it up. Well, hallucination seems a little far-fetched given that there were so many people who saw the risen Jesus on a number of occasions, even 500 at one time. Lying, too, seems unlikely, right? I mean, since so many of these people had ended up losing their lives because of their testimony that Jesus had been raised from the dead. I mean, some people might have been willing to lose their life for a lie, but, but not so many, right? Somebody at some point would have, would have cracked, and yet, not only do they not turn back from persecution, but there's, there's more to it than that because the resurrection makes a dramatic change in the attitude and the activity of the disciples. Prior to the resurrection, right, the disciples scatter and abandon Jesus. They even deny him. But after the resurrection, they speak boldly, not seeking to conquer with a sword, but seeking to proclaim a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins based on the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection event changes the disciples from a group of scared, fearful deniers to a group of bold, outspoken confessors of the resurrected Jesus. What accounts for this radical change? Well, nothing better than the resurrection itself. Their Jesus was alive again. He had conquered sin and death. And then he had given them his spirit to empower them to proclaim. No, this wasn't a hallucination, nor was it a fabricated fairy tale. Jesus rose from the dead in time and space. And he proved that, Luke says in in Acts 1-3, by presenting himself alive to many people after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. See, Jesus' resurrection is a historical event, something that happened in time and space to which many people were eyewitnesses. And we have that eyewitness testimony today in writing in the New Testament. It's true, we can't go and talk to the people who saw him rise from the dead, but we can read their eyewitness testimony as we open the pages of the New Testament. Matthew and Mark and John and Peter and James and Jude, even Paul saw the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, of course, we're reading this morning the book of Luke. Luke uh, was not himself an eyewitness, but, but Luke says in Luke chapter 1 that like a news reporter, he, he had talked to the eyewitnesses himself and he was now writing down an orderly account of their testimony. The resurrection of Jesus is, is a historical event. And let's, let's move on, though, to, to the second point, which is that the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is not only a historical event, but it's also a physical event. 
Now, in some ways, we've already established this, right? I mean, in showing that the resurrection was a historical event, we're showing that it was physical as well. Jesus rose bodily. He proved that to his disciples by allowing them to touch his hands and and his feet and the scars and by eating in their presence more than once, we read. But I point this out on its own because the physical nature of the resurrection is so important. There are so many wrong views, for one, about the body and the soul, right? Some people in our day believe that, well, the soul is good, but the body is bad, and our goal is just to escape this body. You'll hear people say things like, they can't wait to be rid of the body. Or, or others would just say, wouldn't go that far, but they say that the body is unnecessary, right? Christians, we, we simply go to heaven when we die. That's our great hope. Of course, Eastern religions uh, would go further and say that there is no body, that this life is an illusion, right? And that our real goal is to somehow transcend the illusion, that there's no real physical world at all. Well, Jesus' resurrection in a body in one moment demonstrates that all of these views are, are false, Jesus' resurrection demonstrates the goodness of the body, right? If the goal was simply to escape the body, as so many think, right, then why would Jesus have risen from the dead? To escape the body and then to come back again, right, it would be foolish. And it was foolish to many in the Greek world who saw the body as essentially a bad thing. When they heard about the resurrection, they laughed in the book of Acts. Why would anybody want to rise from the dead? Jesus' resurrection also demonstrates the body is not unnecessary, right? This physical body is an integral part of being human. And so he died and then rose physically in the flesh. Jesus' efforts to demonstrate uh, his resurrection, that, that, that it was really physical, shows that his goal was not to transcend the illusion of a physical world, right? But to dwell in the physicality of the world, in a body, in the flesh. In short, Jesus' resurrection in a physical body, his physical body, raised from the dead, shows the inherent goodness of the physical world, which really shouldn't surprise us if we've ever read Genesis chapter 1, since after creating the physical world, God saw that it was good. And after creating Adam and Eve, he saw that the creation was very good. And yet the resurrection, really, it does more than show the goodness of the created world as it, as it is, because that created world was corrupted. And so Jesus' resurrection also shows the restoration, the restoration of the goodness of the created world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus is called the first fruits of a new creation. The goodness of this world has been corrupted by human sin. The creation itself has been subjected to futility, Paul says in Romans 8. Our human bodies specifically, right? We get sick, we grow old, we die. When Jesus rose from the dead, we are told he will never die again, that death no longer has dominion over him, that the power of death has been broken and death's hold on the world has been undone. So when the body of Jesus rose from the dead, a new creation started. And as the first fruits, Jesus' resurrection is a sign, a foretaste, an appetizer of the fullness of the new creation to come. This world, which is constantly breaking apart, has begun to be made new in the resurrection of Jesus. So the resurrection is not only a a, a historical event, it's not only a physical event, but it's also a redemptive event. The resurrection of Jesus means that, that reconciliation with God has been restored. How is this so, right? Well, the Bible teaches that the wages for sin is death. 
but the reward of obedience is life. The law of Moses repeatedly tells us, do this and you will live. And so dying is a punishment for human sin, for human rebellion. Every death throughout history declares our guilt. Every death declares God's anger against human rebellion. But then Jesus comes into the world as the only person who never sinned, the only person not worthy of death. And he goes to the cross and he dies. He dies for our sin, not his own. He takes our punishment, our wages. And he does that in obedience to his father who sent him for this purpose. And so in going to die for our sins, Jesus in this way obeys the father perfectly. Jesus obeys the father by dying for sin. And the reward of his obedience is life, hence the resurrection. See, having obeyed the father to the point of death, Jesus received life as the reward for his obedience. The resurrection is the Father's declaration of the obedience of the Son. It's Jesus' vindication. It's Jesus' justification, Paul says, right? In the resurrection, the Father is declaring his own Son righteous on account of his own obedience. He's saying that Jesus is my righteous child and he deserves life. So the resurrection is the Father's approbation of the Son, The resurrection declares that the Son has peace with the Father on account of his obedience. Okay? But notice something in our text. The risen Jesus comes to his disciples, and what are his first words? Verse 36. Peace to you. Now, some people think that this is just a normal greeting. It's nothing special. And, well, the words may be normal. But this is no normal greeting. It's the greeting of the risen Lord Jesus. And this is the the Jesus who has accomplished peace by his death and by his resurrection. Who has won peace for himself and for all who belong to him by faith. And he now comes declaring peace. What kind of peace does Jesus bring to his disciples? Well, I mean, let, I'll, let me just highlight two things. There could be many more things we could say, but highlight two things in light of what we've seen so far. I mean, on the one hand, Jesus brings the peace of reconciliation to the Father. He has been declared right with the Father, and he offers us that same approbation, right? That same approval, that same vindication, that same justification. When we believe in Jesus, we are declared right with the Father in him. He is right with the Father, and so by faith, we can be right with the Father as well. But Jesus brings more than that. He also brings the peace of the new creation, right? I mean, Jesus has conquered corruption and death and the death of the body, and he holds out to us the hope of the resurrection of our bodies at his return. And so he holds out peace, right? Peace with God, peace with the world around us. And to whom does he declare this peace? I mean, think about the previous three days. These are are people who misunderstood Jesus, who abandoned Jesus, who even denied Jesus. But Jesus comes to these confused, disloyal, man-fearing disciples and declares peace. Jesus can declare peace because he has earned it. He's won it by his obedience. And so he declares it to them. But it's not just to any confused, disloyal, man-fearing people. It's his disciples, those who belong to him. Those who follow him, however much they stumble and fail. I mean, think about it. Do you ever wonder, right, if you have out God's grace? 
Do you ever wonder if you've turned your back on Jesus just one too many times, that that's it for you, that, that, that you're lost for good? Well, these people did not receive Jesus' peace because they passed some sort of test or because they lived up to the law or because they had been, quote, good Christians. Right? They received peace because of Jesus' death and resurrection for them. He died for their disobedience. He won life for his own obedience. And he now offers forgiveness and life to those who look to him and trust in his work on their behalf. This is what the resurrection means for us. It means peace with God. And this is what Jesus declares on that day. Peace, peace to us. Let me quickly draw all of this together. Jesus' resurrection, it's, it's a historical, physical, redemptive event. He rose in time and space, an event to which God's chosen eyewitnesses testify even today through the written documents of the New Testament. It's, it's a physical event that Jesus rose bodily, which both declares the goodness of creation, but also the restoration of the created order through Jesus. And in light of Jesus' work, we can now have peace with God a peace that's freely given, a peace for sinners, a peace for, for people who have tried and failed and failed and failed and failed, just like Peter and the rest of the disciples. How do we respond to this? Well, first, we should believe it, right? Believe in Jesus. Trust in his work on your behalf in the resurrection. Second, know that as a result, you have peace with the Father, the Father's no longer angry with you because of your sin. Death is no longer God's final word for you, but resurrection life is. That's our hope. Third, realize that what we do in our bodies matters. Our bodies were created good. They have been redeemed and they will one day be restored in our resurrection. And so now we can live in hope, right? That pain and, and, and suffering is not the end. Right, that all of the pain and suffering that you undergo in this life, all of the difficulty, all of the trials, it, it is now simply a, a sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. While you may undergo God's discipline as a child, you will never undergo God's judgment as an enemy because Jesus has already done that on your behalf. All of your trouble, right, all of your aches and pains, all of your suffering and trials, all of your sickness and disease, all sadness and tears, all injustice and oppression and enmity and strife, all of that will come to an end when Jesus returns and when we rise from the dead as Jesus rose in time and space on the last day at the consummation of the new creation. Let's hope in that day. Let's pray. Our Father, we do hope and long for the day when we will see Jesus with our eyes, when he returns, and when the new creation that began in his rising from the dead will come to its, its climax, its culmination, when all things will be made new. Father, we thank you that we, we see the first fruits of that. We see a foretaste of that in Jesus' own rising from the dead. Grant us faith in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.